The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So when you have small militaries, post-independence Africa is is a great example of one, Um, or post-independence India needing to boost its mountain warfare capabilities, Legionnaires kind of provide this accelerant by acting as seasoned personnel who know how to do a difficult job, who can be both soldier and trainer to citizen personnel. So in that respect, they have significant advantages over the foreign fighter phenomena. That's certainly a product of who they are, um, the kinds of individuals who volunteer for military service, Um, but it's also a product of the institutions, the state militaries, that take great care in hosting and incubating those skills and assets. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, June 27th, 2022. An interesting subplot of the Russian invasion and subsequent war in Ukraine has been the rush of fighters from other countries to join the Ukrainian Foreign Legion and to fight as legionnaires on behalf of the Ukrainian government. The phenomenon of legionnaires is an interesting one that crops up all throughout history, yet has remained relatively understudied. What role do legionnaires play in conflicts? How does their impact differ from that of normal soldiers? And how can we distinguish them from contractors or mercenaries or other categories of fighters? And what can legionnaires tell us about the ways that states like to conduct international affairs and international conflict? To talk through these issues, I talked to Elizabeth Grassmeter, researcher and author of an international security article entitled Leaning on Legionnaires, Why Modern States Recruit Foreign Soldiers. We talked about the historical practice of use of legionnaires and what it can reveal about conflicts today. It's a Lawfare Podcast, June 27th, all about legionnaires. So I think maybe the best place to start is just with a very basic definition of what is a legionnaire? So a legionnaire is a soldier who at the time of their service in another state's military is neither a citizen nor um, a co-ethnic of that state. So, you know, some people, when they hear this word, they might think of something like a contractor, you know, allied forces, foreign fighters more generally. How do you sort of distinguish between these, these different categories of people just so... You know, everyone listening here, we're on the same page about who exactly we're talking about. Sure. So it's if you think of a, a little table, a two by two, and the criteria are identity and institutional membership, it's pretty easy to understand. You know, a citizen who fights within their own state's military is obviously a citizen soldier. 
a citizen who doesn't join the military, who fights in a company like Blackwater, is what we would call a contractor or more pejoratively a mercenary. A foreigner who does the same is also called a mercenary or a contractor. A legionnaire is a foreigner, as I've defined it, someone who's not a citizen, someone who's not a national of a country, who joins the state's military. So he's a part of an official government organization providing for national defense. And without diving into the sort of juicier case studies, talk us through maybe one or two historical examples of, of countries relying upon legionnaires, just so everyone you know, has a sense of what exactly we're talking about. So a great one was actually the United States during the Civil War. Earlier in the war, even though there was considerable volunteering within the Union to fight to, uh, to end the Civil War in the Confederacy, thousands of Europeans flocked to United States embassies abroad and volunteered to join the war effort. That actually grew over time. And that was incredibly useful for the Union Army because at the time, their focus had been fighting small counterinsurgency-style guerrilla wars against Native Americans, whereas these European officers brought considerable experience in artillery and large-scale combat maneuver that really gave the Union Army an advantage. So that's certainly one. Uh, The other big example to take note of is that all of the major parties in both world wars, be they Axis or Ally, either side, all of them made significant use, often tens of thousands of divisions and field armies worth of legionnaires to support their fights. So before we dive into your findings and, and your research here, I want to take a bit of a step back and think about just why is this such a valuable object of study, right? Like what does, you know, looking at legionnaires, it tells us some interesting things about how countries compose their armies and, and things like that. But what, on, on a bigger picture, like what, what should people have in mind while we're talking about, you know, your, your results and the things that you've taken a look at? So I think the two best examples kind of in the modern world today and why this puzzle is compelling come certainly out of the current war in Ukraine and then the ongoing conflict between India and China. You know, Ukraine, which was surprised by the Russian invasion on February 24th, you know, had to transform from a small, really hollowed out force into one that could take on a significantly well-armed military, far larger than its size. So one of President Zelensky's earliest moves within two days of the war, actually, was to put out a call for international volunteers to raise a a Ukraine International Volunteer Legion, as they called it. Um, And not only did this bring combat expertise, things like snipers, but also experts in close quarters combat, medics in these skills that not only injected bodies into the war effort, but that also buttressed Ukrainian expertise so that they were able to rebuff the Soviet, the Russian assault. Likewise, it brought considerable international attention that made getting heavy weapons from the U.S., from much of the European Union, kind of this popular cause that everyone wanted to support. So legionnaires are important not only for how they compose you know, the war effort a state is mounting, but for many states in their absolute darkest hours, when they're battling for survival, Legionnaires can provide this stopgap that can make the difference between a quick defeat where, as opposed to the possibility of victory or survival. Another reason that legionnaires are important is that they're, they're a clear signal in international diplomacy. India and China have for years, going back to the 1950s, been battling over a portion of their short border. And just last year, that border erupted into hostilities um, with a loss of life, something not seen in many years. 
And India made a very pointed decision early on. It surged uh, soldiers, Tibetan soldiers, legionnaires, and something known as the Special Frontier Force, one of their elite mountain warfare units, and sent them right under the border with China against the PLA, something that Beijing had years ago warned India not to do. So it's not only about fighting capability and the ability to persist in a war, but it's also about how you communicate intention and signal resolve to other states. Elizabeth, could you give us a 10,000-foot view of the trends of Legionnaire use over time? Is this, is this a new thing? Is this something that's waxed and waned as history has flowed? It's both something that has persisted for as long as we've had states, you know, going back to the Napoleonic Wars and national militaries as we think of them. But it's also something that's been growing over time. So even when you had the post-World War period and decolonization and these growth of states, you saw the number of legionnaire policies in use, these efforts by states to recruit legionnaires, grow together with states. So overall, there have been about in the past 200 years, well over 230 policies that have recruited legionnaires. Some of these have been in existence for 200 years continuously without interruption, as in the case of France or or the UK. Others have existed as long as some newly independent states. But what's fascinating is, even as in popular culture with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, we talked about contractors coming back and being these important elements of combat service support, how, uh, how states supply and maintain logistics in wars. Legionnaires have been this constant and ever-present feature of how states have actually fought all of those wars. And if you could just walk us through what the the central argument of your article is. So the piece argues that there is a, a demand and supply dynamic that explains why states expand their recruitment of legionnaires or begin it from the outset. And it frames this choice as a function of political constraints at home that makes a government view recruiting additional citizens as risky, combined with perceptions by that same state that it's facing these external territorial threats that require answer. So legionnaires in this context represent something called omnibalancing. It allows a state to fulfill two competing imperatives at once, to close the gap between the number of citizen soldiers it thinks it can safely get and the number of troops it needs without incurring any additional risk that could threaten that government's hold on power. And what are those risks? Like what what risks are entailed by trying to, you know, increase citizen enrollment in the army beyond a, a certain point? Historically, there have been four factors that have kind of created this this condition where where governments view ripe for disaster. But essentially any one of them creates this trade-off in the mind of the government where taking one additional citizen off the street and putting him in, them into uniform could create its own security or political risk. A political risk could be something like a president getting voted out of office because it's unpopular, or a security risk for the government could be even inciting a rebellion or a coup against itself because they're pursuing a publicly unpalatable policy. Typically, the four things that have spurred a government to think, ooh, we're facing those risks that make a a legionnaire perhaps more attractive as an alternative have been four. First is when you have these advanced economies that see their labor market entirely saturated 
So pulling one citizen off the production line or off the factory, so to speak, and putting them into uniform can hurt the country, particularly if it's at war in terms of its ability to supply itself. Second, in places like Syria during its civil war, which you know the Syrian regime used legionnaires, would be these ethno-linguistic divides that become politically toxic. A third one is when a state faces uh, what's called a threat internal, internal to the state but external to the regime, which is a fancy way of saying an insurgency or a separatist movement. In those contexts, if you recruit a citizen, a government runs the risk that they're actually just recruiting a future rebel who they're training and will then turn that training against them. And the final risk, frankly, in a lot of autocracies is one of coup risk. In militaries, in coup risk-laden countries, you always have to doubt, is this citizen loyal to me, the president, or is he loyal to a challenger? And again, might be an insider threat. And so how historically have political scientists, historians, security studies scholars treated legionnaires? Is there some sort of established consensus about, about the role they play in, in state warfare? This project is fascinating because in some ways it was having a conversation almost with itself or with, with an absent uh, counter-argument. Ever since, you know, Napoleon and Clausewitz and, you know, Elliot Abrams, we've kind of internalized this belief that states prefer to arm their own citizens for national defense and that that's become the dominant, you know, force that we see constituted in modern warfare. That is both true, even as this recruitment of foreigners never went away. But in some respects, I think the discipline internalized the wisdom that citizen soldiers were dominant and kind of ceased looking at the ways in which states also employed foreigners. Likewise, a lot of security studies has done great research on foreign fighters who are foreigners who fight in non-state groups, insurgencies, terrorism, and the like. And so in some respects, this research on legionnaires is kind of reminding the discipline that states also engage in this behavior when the political insecurity context is right. And then third, the discipline is also focused, particularly given the experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan and now with Wagner in Russia and CAR, on security contractors. But what's interesting with contractors is they primarily fulfill what we think of as tail rather than tooth rolls support, logistics, supply, but not the actual fighting. So in that respect, this focus on legionnaires is looking to remind the discipline that even as contractors are an important phenomenon to study, perhaps our focus there on the non-combat side is misplaced. And is there an example that would be a helpful way of thinking through your, your sort of central argument here, the, a way to think about how the, the relevant supply and demand factors play out in the state's decision to to deploy and recruit legionnaires? So I think one of the most you know, fascinating and surprising is certainly the example focused on in the article with Nazi Germany. It's kind of the one you would least expect, you know, given how toxically that regime viewed you know, foreigners as well as so-called uh, undesirables within its own citizenry. You know, you would think only these, you know, white-haired blonde Aryans would be the ones they would allow into the military. But in the article, what it walks through is how, over the course of years, um, even when Germany was victorious militarily in 1940 and 41, these labor trade-offs that we talked about uh, made Hitler particularly leery of drawing too heavily on the citizenry. So we had our first toe into legionnaires. And then after Operation Barbarossa, 
with his labor picture still pretty bad. The setbacks in the war, particularly in the East, drove uh, the Nazi regime to reverse these longstanding prohibitions on arming uh, Russians and other Soviet populations to the point that by 43, you had about you know, a million Soviets in, in a Wehrmacht or a Waffen-SS uniform, kind of this contradiction of undesirables and the, the pure martial race. And then how by the end of the war, you know, Hitler and the Nazi regime were throwing every possible foreigner into combat, be it a collaborator or a refugee or a poor POW. But it's also a fascinating period of time because the same logic drove Japan, drove Italy, the United States and Britain, all of them mimicked these policies for exactly the same logic as articulated in the article, that demand and supply pressure. That's really interesting. And what is it, is there any consistent trend looking at, you know, different historical examples about what's in it for the legionnaires themselves, except in, you know, there's obviously some cases where they're compelled to fight or not so much of a choice in the matter, but for people who are doing this voluntarily, is there any consistency in, in rationale and sort of the logic on the supply side? Yeah. So it's funny. There's um, almost two very different motivations. Um, One is very emblematic of issues we faced recently in the United States, you know, during um, the Bush administration, during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then continued during the Obama administration, the U S had this tremendous war effort in countries where we didn't have a lot of ethno-linguistic expertise, where we had huge combat medical needs. Um, And those administrations both began and steadily steadily expanded policies to allow legal permanent residents, as well as immigrants without legal status, including um, so-called dreamers, into the United States military with tremendous success, bringing not only ethno-linguistic expertise and kind of cultural background, not only to places like Afghanistan and Iraq, but also to U.S. war efforts in Somalia and across West Africa, this real tremendous asset and boon to the United States military. But at the same time, you know, when the Trump administration came in in 2017, the administration seemingly manufactured um, concerns that these individuals could be security threats and subsequently shut down many of these programs. There was even a point during that administration when, you know, a foreigner seeking citizenship could do it faster as a civilian than a foreigner seeking citizenship could by having served in the United States military. You would think that these contradictions shouldn't exist. It's also um, become increasingly an issue in the United States in that many servicemen do see citizenship in the United States through their military service. That's still surprisingly rare as an incentive given to a lot of legionnaires. Most states do not offer it, though though some do offer a path to legal placement. But of course, that also raises issues about uh, the speed of immigration pipelines and a myriad of domestic challenges. The other reason that a lot of legionnaires will enroll is, frankly, either ideological affinity or the fact many of them have made lifetimes at war and they prefer to do it through the legal and kind of protected institutions of a state military rather than through a contracting organization, which they've not always been legal and operated above board. So particularly in the 60s through the 80s and 90s, when you had insurgencies throughout Africa, there were foreigners fighting them, but there were also specialists who who enlisted from neighboring militaries, kind of their ability to continue a fight they had begun on their homeland into another state. 
So in some cases, it's that mixture of, of tangible benefit, citizenship, certainly payment can often be good, particularly if you're in, the, in Australia and then the Emirates Presidential Guard. But also sometimes it's ideological affinity, uh, which I know something gets touched on quite a bit in the, the foreign fighter literature as well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One thing I remember from the foreign fighter literature is you know, the, the theory on whether, whether or not foreign fighters are actually universally making a positive impact is, is pretty meh. It seems in, in a lot of cases, right, that foreign fighters, you know, sure, they, they bring some benefit, they bring some manpower, but there's also some enormous downsides historically to relying upon foreign fighters. Does that, first of all, am I sort of right in remembering that? And second of all, does that track at all with the, the Legionnaires phenomenon or are Legionnaires generally more successful? I would say in terms of the foreign fighter phenomenon, um, there are folks who have done some great work, certainly noting where they have had some combat efficacy. But but you're right, a lot of their utility can be in propaganda. Um, certainly ISIS in, in Iraq and Syria use that to great effect. But a downside of them, as, as you noted, is that they can be the perpetrators of, of horrific violence, torture, gender-based violence, and that kind of going together with movements, be they insurgencies or terrorist groups that themselves don't have the discipline and the legal framework that a state military does. You know, by contrast, um, legionnaires do have a much better record of success. It's important in framing that comment to realize that often states are turning to legionnaires when they're already down on one knee or perhaps down on both knees. So they're in this fear of de- defeat scenario already. Um, so in those cases, you see legionnaires either playing this kind of bridging role. They provide enough band-aid or coverage on the bleeding wound of a state military to get it through this hard moment such that it can mount a counteroffensive. Uh, that's the story of how most of them were used in large conflicts, like, like in World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and elsewhere. But the other thing that they can also do is accelerate a state's military's ability to secure and disperse expertise that otherwise can take more than a generation to acquire. So when you have small militaries, post-independence Africa is is a great example of one, um, or post-independence India needing to boost its mountain warfare capabilities, legionnaires kind of provide this accelerant by acting as seasoned personnel who know how to do a difficult job, who can be both soldier and trainer to citizen personnel. So in that respect, they have significant advantages over the foreign fighter phenomena. That's certainly a product of who they are, um, the kinds of individuals who would volunteer for military service. 
Um, but it's also a product of the institutions, the state militaries, that take great care in hosting and incubating those skills and assets. And you had mentioned at the top two contemporary prominent examples of this, the first being what's going on now in Ukraine, and the second being legionnaires involved in the conflict between China and, and India. I think the end of your last answer is maybe a good segue into diving deeper into Ukraine. So could you just expand a, a bit on what you had mentioned at the top and, and talk about as the conflict has evolved, you know, from the, the first moments of war to now, what's your sense of, of the role that legionnaires have played and sort of the level of involvement that legionnaires have had in, in the war effort? I know they certainly get a fair bit of attention in, in Western press. Certainly. And it's funny, it's one of the, the fastest cases of legionnaire recruitment I can really remember ever because it was just within you know, two days, I think, if my memory serves, that Kiev's various government ministries started putting out these informal calls for volunteers and that later springing the genesis of Zelensky's announcement of the International Volunteer Legion. It seems like in, in Ukraine, there are a couple of different ways legionnaires have played out where they've been useful, where they haven't been useful. Certainly one of the most effective roles legionnaires have played for the Ukrainian government is serving as a flashpoint and as a channel for foreign government support. For countries like Britain, the United States, Germany, Poland, who had their own nationals on the battlefield, serving first and formally as volunteers and then later as these legionnaires, uh, it puts a lot more public pressure at home uh, to make the Ukrainian war in some ways a domestic issue and rallies domestic support behind a government that would help, you know, the Ukrainian David stand up against the Russian Goliath. So that's one, serving as a focal point for attracting and sustaining foreign support. Second, quite a few foreign volunteers who have flocked to Ukraine have had specialties in close combat quarters training, as well as in medical and kind of combat service support skills that may not be as sexy as, you know, a sniper or, or a special operator, but are often the bread and butter of how a military, particularly a military as hollowed out as Ukraine's had been after the previous few years, can sustain a long-term fight. Certainly there have been reports of war cowboys who have gone to Ukraine and wanted to take a selfie and go home, you know, legionnaires who are not actually supporting the war effort and who have either been um, sent all home or who have gone home. Um, but it seems like that's very much the minority of the experience to the degree that we have data. I think the other effort more recently that legionnaires have played into, whether they meant to or not, is about instilling and sustaining Ukraine's allied commitment in the war against Russia. Russia has made very public in recent weeks its capture of British um, and other American volunteers, as well as battles in which foreign volunteers, legionnaires from Ukraine's side, have been killed in battle. And in some ways, Russia has done this to try to you know, frame its own uh, campaign as more righteous. But what's done in some ways is, is the reverse, is it's reminded these publics in, in Britain, in the United States, and elsewhere, that, hey, our boys are in the fight. They may be wearing a Ukrainian patch when they're doing it, but that's our citizen that those Russians want to execute. So in some ways, that's not a role that the Ukrainians wanted or intended to play, but it is a perverse benefit that Ukraine and the Ukrainian government derive from their presence on the battlefield. And I, I remember speaking to you, I, I 
talked to Dan Byman on the Lawfare podcast maybe two months ago, and we were talking about a similar subject about foreigners going to Ukraine. And he he sort of raised this concern that if a given country is, is sending a, a pretty significant number of, of fighters to go participate in a conflict in a legionnaire basis, right, it, it starts to, at least from an optics standpoint, sort of blur the line between informal channels of recruitment and this sort of weird it can look like a, a quasi-military alliance where none is actually in force. And, you know, it's it's this sort of blurring of the line that, of course, in, in a lot of ways is probably favorable to, to mm-hmm. Ukraine. But, you know, if, if you're the U.S. government, this might be something that makes you a little bit queasy. Has that historically been a, a challenge of, of legionnaire recruitment as a state practice? Because I could see, right, in different contexts, states being quite wary of, of their citizens going abroad to participate in, in these types of conflicts? Yeah, I think so. There are kind of two very different dynamics and you've teed them up both nicely. First is, you know, the, the volunteers from the country, those who would go to another state and be a legionnaire for their military, um, they can be first movers and they can move ahead of or even in opposition to the wishes of their own government. You know, there are these great diplomatic cables you can read in the U.S. archives of you know, Britain and Belgium and, and all of these European countries being furious with the Lincoln administration for accepting their own citizens into the Union Army. And these great rebuffs from the, the Secretary of State at the time, William Seward, essentially telling them to, to go eat dirt. I think the line is something like, <laughs> that, there's no law in international comedy that, that requires us to turn down their aid in the defense of our country. So the United States saying, to these European powers with whom it had a frosty relationship. We hear you, we hear you're upset, but needs must when the devil drives. And right now the devil is driving hard. So in that respect, um, the risk Dan Byman mentioned that you rephrased here is very much a correct one. It could drag a state into a place it doesn't want to be. But likewise, um, as often as not, as you indicated, that is a real benefit. People always wonder what's the best comparison between Ukraine's situation with its legionnaires right now in history. And for some reason, people will often first think of the Spanish Civil War, which seems odd because it's a civil war. But a better example is perhaps Finland's Winter War, which was from 39 to 40. Now, Finland was you know, a plucky small state like Ukraine is now, facing down a, a Soviet mammoth that had expansive territorial ambitions. Uh, but Finland was also in a position where Britain, France, you know, nobody else was going to be coming to their aid because London and Paris had their eye focused on Merlin and they didn't want to start a fight sooner than they needed to. But allowing their citizens to go, to join the military, to serve as funnels for thousands of dollars worth of cash or of supplies, it does create a a very nice, um, shall we say, other than overt or other than acknowledged channel through which to funnel military support. So you're right, it does kind of raise these questions about you're not a formal ally, but you're also not a pariah. So what are you? But I think that really goes to underscore just how often states not only profit from, but are comfortable in and even prefer that murky area of international politics rather than these clear lines that scholars sometimes imagine they prioritize. And you had mentioned in talking about Ukraine that there's you know these U.S legionnaires who are in Ukraine who are held captive by the Russian the Russian government at this point. Is there a history of how states have treated 
legionnaires held, you know, either in prisoner of war contexts or, mm-hmm. or in other analogous situations. You know, it's funny. Um, in a lot of cases where you have two combatants in an interstate war recruiting legionnaires, they do tend to have this quid pro quo arrangement where they don't summarily execute them. They don't abuse them. They do treat them like recognized prisoners of war. One would imagine because by doing that to my enemies, legionnaire, I hope they would do it for mine. So often there is a lot of respect when it's a mutual practice. What Russia's doing, which is, you know, dragging these poor, you know, these British captives or American captives, these Ukrainian legionnaires out in front of the camera, is it's trying to condemn them as you know, mercenaries, which is more often a slur than it is a, a useful term, condemn them as mercenaries and say, you know, they show just just the depth of the impotence of the, the regime in Kiev. This is curious for a couple reasons. First is the fact that Russia, not just during this, not just during the Cold War, but since the Cold War and indeed under Putin, itself also recruits legionnaires and is in fact doing so in the Ukrainian context. There's it's been widely reported how they've worked with the Syrian regime, for example, to try to enlist Arabs or try to enlist individuals from the Central African Republic to buttress its own flagging ground effort. So that's a little bit of exception as the historical norm. But also, I think what it really highlights is the desperation of Moscow to find any way to break this really firm global commitment that has coalesced around Ukraine. And when you're, when you're lacking for good stones, the mercenary one is, is a good one to pick up. It's certainly a problem for Russia, given the role of Wagner on the battlefield, given Russia's own legionnaire recruitment. But it is a propaganda tool and an attempt to kind of really break that armor that is thickened around um, supporting Zelensky's government. And you had mentioned at the top the the India-China example, which is, you know, a different way of thinking about the the function that legionnaires might serve. Could you just remind us what you what you were talking about there and maybe expand a bit? So it's fascinating, right? Uh, India and China, during the, the 1950s, there had been this policy um, of China and India are closer than brothers. This was back in the heyday of of Nehru's non-alignment and, and efforts to make peace between their great powers in the East. But that kind of friendship belied a territorial dispute in these mountains of the high Himalayas that eventually erupted into a war in 1962 that was just a disaster for India. And one of the emergency, you know, emergency tools they whipped out when they were fearful of their own defeat in that conflict was to target and look at this population of, of refugees from Tibet people who had fled Chinese-occupied Tibet, some of whom had been trained under what we now know of as a a declassified or publicized CIA covert action effort, I believe uh, Project Mustang. It took these these Tibetans who were well acclimatized for mountain warfare, who were clearly motivated to fight against China and the PLA, and they used them to form the backbone of uh, a new unit that would be specialized in mountain warfare and operating behind enemy lines. Uh, we now know that unit as the Special Frontier Force, SFF, uh, though it was known by a different name at the time. And it's actually one of a few different units in the Indian Army comprising Tibetans. So what's interesting about this force is it has come up more than once in diplomatic interactions between China and India, and including erupting recently in Chinese state media, The government in Beijing, I think, used the phrase that India should pursue the expansion of the the Special Frontier Force as a project to engage, quote, with caution. 
because everybody knows who stas the Bajau Special Frontier Force. So it, it's very much mutually understood as a signal, and it was a very pointed decision by the, the Indian government to have a state funeral for one of the casualties from these soldiers to ensure that they were on the front lines after clashes with China broke out. And it's also a fascinating example of how legionnaire recruitment can shape the behavior of other states. If India started recruiting these Tibetans for their you know, storied and truly famous capabilities in mountain warfare, you know, China, having its problematic and authoritarian policies towards Tibet, had long eschewed recruiting Tibetans into its military. And yet after this latest round of hostilities with India, uh, reports have emerged, though unsubstantiated, that China is itself targeting Tibetans in areas it controls for recruitment in just these same high altitudes and harsh climates. You had mentioned sort of in both these examples, there's the, the subtext, and you mentioned it a bit too, is that it does reveal that states have this preference sometimes for not just the, the sort of clear cut, you know, state A versus state B. They, they prefer, there's some advantages inherent in being able to blur the lines a bit, right? And, and to find this sort of separate channels of, of state conflict and separate channels of, of military involvement. What are the other, you know, when you take a step back and think about your research, what are the other sort of things that you feel like this has revealed to you about the ways that states like to interact with each other and, and like to you know, conduct warfare and, and think about their own diplomatic efforts? Certainly. I think it, it underscores, you know, we've accepted over time that you know, trade is globalized. Even trade in weapons and arms development is, you know, an international industry that, you know, arms, if they're a component of national military power, sometimes those components reside abroad. But with combat personnel, both in how we kind of think of it as this, you know, signal of how good a state is, how much its populace supports a war and supports the government, you know, this key example and embodiment of national military power, combat personnel, is in fact international. So when states are looking at the boundaries of what they can bring to bear in a conflict, either in preparation for one or if you're like Ukraine at your darkest hours, it really underscores the way in which states are very flexible and dynamic and resourceful in their thinking. And they don't constrain themselves either by geography to their boundaries, by group membership as by citizenship, they're very international. They're very, they're very the opposite of autarkic in how they're willing to harness military capabilities for national purpose. So I think in some ways, these, these very nice rules that govern international politics, international conflicts, norms and the like, can often be far more contingent and constantly renegotiated than we think. And legionnaires in many ways are the embodiment of one of those ultimate contradictions that the individual who would defend the state is not, in fact, of the state. I think that is an excellent place for us to wrap today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. Here, you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please consider rating and reviewing the Lawfare Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcast offerings, including Rational Security, Chatter, 
and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, the aftermath. While you're at it, check out our written work at lawfareblog.com and buy some Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patiahau, and your audio engineer for this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and as always, thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.